welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's featured preacher is Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. He was a longtime professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary, where he taught more than 10,000 students. Nicknamed the Prof, he was also the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys from 1976 to 1984. Listen as Dr. Hendricks expounds on teaching Christianity. Today's message is How Christ Taught Learners. delight to be back in New England, and particularly at Park Street Church, and to fellowship with Dr. Paul Toms and Wayne Anderson and others whom I have come to love deeply and respect highly for their work's sake. I hope you appreciate this delightful Texas weather, which I had shipped up for the occasion. <laughs> you know, when you live in millennial conditions, it's difficult. <laughs> to appreciate that others are compelled to live in the tribulation. <laughs> so having heard of your plight, I shipped it up. But uh, someone did tamper with the air conditioning system en route, for I assure you it is much colder. When I left Dallas, it was about 78 degrees, and somewhat of a contrast when I stepped off the airport at the airport last night. Someone asked me some time ago, how can you tell if a Texan is lying? I said, friend, if his lips are moving, he is. <laughs> now, my friends, you need another seminar like you need another hole in the head. But you desperately need to hear from heaven. And if you have come to hear the voice of a man, I can assure you at the outset, you will be tragically disappointed. But if you have come to hear from heaven, I believe the Spirit of God wants to speak incisively to our needs this day. And I have been much in prayer for this weekend that the Spirit of God will light some fires which will never go out, that he will disturb you, that he will change you, and he alone can do this. In our first session this morning, I would like to discuss with you the subject, How Christ Taught Learners. Jesus Christ was the world's greatest revolutionary. He revolutionized his generation and everyone since. For he revolutionizes the individual. Luke chapter 23 and verse 5, you read a significantly perceptive insight from the opposition. The company dragged Jesus Christ before Pilate, and in verse 2 we, we read, they set forth a threefold charge. They accused him, saying, first, we found this man perverting our nation, second, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, and third, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. But none of these 
impressed Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, Thou sayest. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no fault in this man. Then they come up with the trump card. But they were more urgent, saying, He stirs up the people. How? By a demonstration? By a radical movement? No. By teaching. And may his tribe increase. Josiah Royce said it. It is humiliating to belong to a race that can make anything as exciting as truth dull. But we do. In fact, we work at it. The average person in our church today is not excited by the truth. He's embalmed by it. And we produce even in our seminaries, some professional embalmers. <laughs> they are really gifted. There are three foundational concepts to this kind of teaching. And I'd like to share them with you because I believe they are yeasty concepts. And if you need them into your mind, you will never be the same again. First of all, if you are going to stir and move people through teaching, you will have to engage in a brand of teaching that involves communication. Now that's a word we banter around but little understand. Teaching is not talking. If it were, my students would be brilliant. <laughs> teaching is communication, not covering material. So often I ask a teacher in a Sunday school, what's your objective? To cover the quarterly. Say, lady, I got a fine way to do it. Take a huge book and put it over it. You'll cover it. <laughs> Teaching that stirs people is always communicational. And the test of communication is not primarily what did you say, but what does the person understand as a result of what you say. The second transforming concept of teaching that transforms is that teaching of this kind always involves causation. And that's a significant fact. For example, practically all of the Hebrew words which are used to translate the English term to teach are found in the causative stems 
which means they are to be translated to cause to learn. You have not taught unless people have learned. So the teaching is not primarily what you do, but what your students do as a result of what you do. The third element is the true teaching, the kind that Jesus engaged in, always involves change. And I would say that change takes place in three primary areas. First of all, it takes place in thinking. That is, a man's mentality is restructured. And if you want an interesting passage of Scripture, look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Stop allowing the world to squeeze you into its mold, but be ye transformed. How? By the renewing, the overhauling, the changing of your mind. It calls for a whole new mindset, a new set of values, a new perspective. And the problem with most of us as Christians is that we are in Christ still embracing our unregenerate mentality and operating on the basis of it. And it is not until the Word of God begins in its aliveness to blast away at your unregenerate thinking and supplants it with biblical thinking that you will ever become a significant person with impact. But this is also the tragedy, particularly among us as evangelicals. We are overly impressed with the mind. We think people are primarily nous. That's the Greek word for mind. And so wherever I go, I find people who say, you know, if we can just change these people's thinking, if we can just pour enough thanks into their head, if we can just give them enough Bible doctrine, this will solve all of their problems. And most of us give the lie to that statement. My problem, my friend, is not that I don't know enough. My problem is that that which I know has not changed my life. So that leads to a second area in which change must take place. And that's in the realm of feeling, in the realm not simply of the intellect, as important as that is, but also in the realm of the emotions, so that I begin to feel differently. Sir Walter Moberly wrote a fascinating book a number of years ago entitled The Crisis in the University, in which he leveled a tremendous charge at us as evangelicals for our lack of gospel penetration on the university campus. And in that book he made this statement, and he's speaking to us, if one-tenth of what you believe is true, you ought to be ten times as excited as you are. Did you hear what he said? If you take your doctrinal statement and reduce it to one-tenth, and that one-tenth is what you claim it to be, you ought to be ten times as excited as you are. And I think the greatest need today on a university campus 
or in, an, in a community in the United States or around the world is a group of people who have some spiritual kerosene poured over them and a match is lit to them. But what often happens is that we develop a severe case of the blahs. It's cold mashed potato. You hear them talking, isn't it wonderful to serve Jesus? <laughs> Man, it's so exciting. I can hardly wait to sign up. I wish that some of you would begin to froth at the mouth and fairly need to be led away just with sheer unadulterated excitement that God by his gracious spirit ever brought you into the family. I hope you never recover from that fact. And that makes a vast difference in communication. You see, with many of us, you know, we're trying to sell. It's like the guy out selling vacuum cleaners and he comes to a house and there just happens to be somebody on the other side of the door. And they think somebody's scratching, so they open. Hi. <laughs> you wouldn't like to buy a vacuum cleaner, would you? <laughs> Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I'm quite interested. Oh, really? You're the first person I found today that's interested. <laughs> well, come on in. Would you mind demonstrating your vacuum cleaner? <laughs> well, I really don't know how it works. <laughs> but I'll tell you, they gave me a, a little folder here. I'll tell you what, you read it and we'll try to work it out. <laughs> most of us would starve to death. There is a third area. And that is, not only must my thinking be revolutionized and my feeling restructured, but also my doing, my behavioral pattern must be changed. And this involves the volition. It was Fenelon who said, the essence of Christianity resides in the will. That is where you begin to make some crucial, determinative decisions. And your whole lifestyle is restructured on the basis of the truth so that the Word of God relates to every area of human experience. morning I'd like to take these three concepts and I'd like to share with you some basic principles that you can study regarding the teacher come from God and how he communicated and how he caused people to change. Number one, Jesus Christ did this by getting his pupils involved in the process. By getting his pupils involved in the process. And in my judgment, Christian education is entirely too passive. 
It casts the believer in the role of a spectator. He's primarily an outsider looking in, watching others, primarily professionals, perform. I think the average church chips in and hires a clergyman to rob them of the privilege of ministry. I had a fascinating experience in Michigan not too long ago. I ran into a church where they had two requirements. They were hiring a new pastor and they brought him on the scene and said, we got two requirements. Number one, we don't want you doing anything that we can do. If we find you doing anything that we can do, we're going to rebuke you as an elder because we're not bringing you here to do our work for us. We're bringing you here to equip us to do our work. Secondly, we don't want you out of your home every night of the week and shooting your family out of the saddle. So if we find you out every night of the week, we're going to rebuke you as an elder because you forfeited your right to ministry. I shared this story with a group of pastors and they lined up afterwards to find the address of the church. <laughs> I think, my friends, the greatest curse upon the church has been the one-man church. And some of us as laymen have been most culpable. We've poured our ministers into molds to which God never called them to be conformed. Now, I've discovered that the more the student participates in the educational process, the more he will take away from it. Would you believe it? They pay me to teach a course at the seminary. It's the first course offered in our curriculum to freshman students. And I teach them how to study the Bible for yourself. It's a basic course in inductive Bible study. And of course, you know, I turn the guys loose in the passages of Scripture, Acts 1, 8, several others, and they go flying into this to find these observations, and they come running back to me. And they say, well, that's a pretty fair start. Try it again. You know, the guy's got 65 observations on one verse, about 65 more than he usually had. So you mean there are more here? Oh, plenty more. You haven't even scratched the surface. Go back again. Uh, okay. Back he goes. Now, we never have enough time to share this. That is the results of what these men find. So invariably, some student comes after class and he says, Hey, prof, uh, uh, and he shows me what he found in the passage. You know what he's saying to me? I'll bet Calvin never saw this. <laughs> I'll bet Luther never heard of this, prof. And what he's really saying, though he never verbalizes it, is, I'll bet you haven't seen it either. <laughs> and you know, I wouldn't tell him I had. I've got a group of 12 doctors meeting right now, and I've got them into the Word. And I had a guy who came up after the thing, and I'm telling you he shared what he found in that passage, and you have never seen a seminary professor as excited as I get. You talk about frothing at the mouth and fairly need to be led away. This was exactly my position. But you know what most of us do with a person like that? We say, well, yeah, Doc, that's pretty good. In fact, I remember 27 years ago when I met Jesus, I saw that. <laughs> that really turns him on. You see, my friends, the key is learning what to get excited about. 
And most of us are excited about the wrong thing. We're excited about what we're doing rather than about what our people are doing, our disciples, our pupils. Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. You have an interesting experience. Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the multitude cast money into the treasury. Many that were rich cast in much, and there came a poor widow. She cast in two mites which make a farthing. Now notice. And he called unto him his disciples and said, Verily I say unto you, this poor widow cast in more than all they that are casting into the treasury. You see, he capitalizes on an opportunity of involving them in the process and then teaches them on the basis of this significant experience. Jesus Christ taught men while involved in the battle. I had a student, a third-year student, who said to me one day, Prof, would you take me with you sometime? I said, I'm going out tonight to the university. You want to come out with me? Yeah. He said, would you take me? I said, certainly. I'm evaluating a session of another student. So we went out to this fraternity house where this guy presented the gospel, and that night two people accepted the Savior. I'll never forget that night as long as I live because one of these kids was the most cursing kid I have ever seen. Every other sentence was... And finally, he received Christ as his Savior. And he knelt down and prayed. And when he got up, he said, Man, things are going to be a hell of a lot different now. <laughs> and then he said, Oh, excuse me. <laughs> and I watched the student like a hawk. He never said a word. Finally, in the process of follow-up, he said to him, you know what happened tonight? Holy Spirit took up his residence in your heart. I said, really? Right. He said, how will I know? He said, why did you apologize when you curse? He said, man, I don't know. That's the first time I've ever done that in my life. That's the Holy Spirit. You know, if you'd have given 20 courses in a seminary on the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have convinced him as much as he did. There were two young men who accepted Christ as their Savior that night. And I stayed behind to talk to the student for a few moments. Then I went out to my car to take this other student back to the seminary. When I got in the car, the tears were streaming down his face. He said, thanks, Prof. Thanks very, very much for bringing me out here tonight. He said, as you know, I'm in the third year. And this is the first time I have seen Jesus Christ, a person trust Jesus Christ right in front of my eyes. And frankly, I was beginning to lose confidence in my message. I happen to believe this is what's happening in many of our churches. It's been so long since some of these people have seen somebody trust the Savior right in front of their eyes, and particularly in which they are involved, that they are beginning to lose confidence in their message. I was out at the Air Force Academy some time ago for a series of seminars. Met a wonderful man, head of the mathematics department. I said, how many men do you have in your department? He said, 67. I said, what's the tenure of these men? Well, he said, uh, except for those who are in administration, we determine that. We will not allow a man to teach in this institution longer than five years. And then he must return 
to active service in the Air Force. I said, really, how come? He said, because we consider this an infecting institution and we discover a man who's more than five years removed from the military is no longer infectious. That would be an interesting principle to apply in seminary. For you see, my friends, if you come untracked and unplugged from reality, then you begin talking about what God used to do instead of what he is doing right now. A second principle. Jesus Christ changed men by stretching them through problem-solving situations. He stretched them through problem-solving situations. And if you want an interesting passage to study, study Mark chapter 5, beautiful story of Jairus who comes because his daughter's at the point of death and on the way back they meet this sad woman 38 years in his infirmity and he stops right in the middle of it to heal her and you can almost see the group you know saying come on Lord let's move and just then the message comes she died and he says in effect thanks a lot Lord you won't have to come now you know as long as there's life there's hope he says look just keep believing. Did it ever occur to you why Jesus Christ allowed that to happen? I'll tell you why. Because he was in the process of stretching Jairus's faith. Jesus Christ is never interested simply in imparting faith. He's interested in the development of your faith. And he knows if you do not that it works best under fire. It thrives on tension. Well, we're scared to death of this thing. We're scared to death of casualties. Over and over again, people say to me, oh, good night, I don't want to do that. <laughs> He'll fail. Lady came to me some time ago. She said, oh, Professor Hendricks, what am I going to do? I said, what's your problem? So I got to send my boy to camp. <laughs> I don't know if he'll make it. I said, look, lady, he'll do phenomenally well. We'll have no problem with him. Our only problem is with you. <laughs> <laughs> so she packs the seven sets of underwear in his suitcase, all lined up, comes back at the end of the week, all seven sets of underwear, <laughs> strips the original ones off. Kid had the greatest learning experience of his life. Student came up at the end of a counseling class one day, said, uh, say, Prof, uh, can you give me something that'll stretch me a little? I said, yeah, I think we can arrange that. So I called up. <laughs> I called up the juvenile home in our area and a friend of mine there, I said, hey, I got a student that needs an education. He said, I got the picture, send him out. <laughs> so they dropped him in the cell of a kid, 14 years of age, billed on 27 major counts of juvenile delinquency. The state is merely waiting for him to grow up to put him away permanently. He walks in and this kid's got his feet propped up on the windowsill and he turns around and he says, hey, 
What's your line? Every day they send somebody in here with a different line. What's yours? You should hear the student tell us. He said, boy, prof, I lost it all right on the floor. <laughs> but man, was he ever interested in finding out if I had anything that would help him in this kind of a situation. You see, the time when you are ripest for learning is when you are really hung. This is what I call the dangling principle in education. You won't find it in most texts. Jesus Christ is constantly putting the disciples in a situation where they are hung. And they come running back and say, Lord, how come we couldn't cast it out? That's great learning. I had a student come to me some time ago. He said, Prof, pray for me. I said, sure, what do you want me to pray for? He said, I'm going out to the university. And he said, man, pray that they won't go for my throat, will you? I said, no, I won't pray about that. I said, I'm going to pray that they'll go for your jugular vein. <laughs> really? Really? Saw him the next morning on a class on the campus, he said, well, prof, the Lord answered your prayer. <laughs> Boy, did they ever, did he ever. I'll tell you, they plastered the wall with him. He came out so bloody, you wouldn't believe it. He came out a learner. He happens to be today, in my judgment, a man with one of the most effective ministry to university students that I know of. And if he were here, he would tell you it all started in a fraternity where they absolutely crucified me. And I discovered I really didn't have it. I really didn't know it. And that started a whole new process of learning. For years, we've had a fascinating individual in our community. Unfortunately, he recently retired. And I lost one of my best laboratories. Dr. Sharmitz is his name. He taught trial law at Southern Methodist University School of Law, probably the most brilliant trial lawyer in America, has the distinction of having developed more winners than any five professors in this field. And I have watched him in action. In fact, I used to send my students out. He sets the class up in the trial law situation. He's got the prosecution and the defense, and one guy is the judge, and he's got the rest of them in the jury. Everybody's in the act, and he sits in the back smoking a cigar, and you're quite convinced that he's out like a light. But he hears everything that's going on. And finally, they finish the case, and he comes storming down the aisle saying, good night. You don't mean to tell me you're going to try that case like that, do you? You know what I would do with that prosecution? This is what I do. No prosecution left. Defense sitting over here saying, boy, do we win this one. Whips around and said, you know what I would do with that shoddy defense? This is what I do. Nothing left. The only secure guy is the judge. <laughs> you know, a little twinkle in his eye says, hey, man, you want to know how to win that case? Follow me. Like the Pied Piper, you'd see them going across the campus. I used to say to people, if you ever see a man with about 20 guys following him, follow him. That's the guy. <laughs> he goes over to Lawyer's Inn and sits down and says, okay, man, now I'll show you how to win that case. One day I was out at the university and I said, Dr. Sharmitz, I really appreciate your allowing me to send my students out. That's all right, Hendricks. He said, every now and then we get hung out here and we need some theologians to bail us out. <laughs> I said, what's your educational philosophy? He said, educational philosophy? I don't know what in the world you're talking about. He said, I have just one principle of teaching and it's this. I would rather have my students lose in here and win out there rather than win 
in here and lose out there. You know what our problem is in our churches? From an educational point of view, we got too many winners in here. But they're losing like crazy out there. Our seminary lawyer was trained by Dr. Sharmitz. I said to him one day, hey, Bill, what was it like to be in Sharmitz's class? He said, Hendricks, after you have had Sharmitz, everything in real life is downhill. <laughs> Here's a third principle. Oh, think this one through. Jesus Christ taught men by feeding in terms of readiness to receive. By feeding in terms of readiness to receive. Now, I would have thought that because Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the personification of truth, that he would have said to his disciples, now look, man, I'm only going to be here for a limited period of time, so sit down and get your notebooks full, because I'm going to be gone. But he didn't. In fact, he was never hung up with the fact that they didn't have it all. Over and over again, he said to him, in effect, look, I've got many things to tell you, but you're not able to receive them now. But that's no problem to me, because when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And the greatest distrust among us is a distrust of the spirit of God and his ability to work in the life and experience of our people. And that's why we feel we've got to give him a whole truck. Now, my friends, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. <laughs> and the process of feeding often involves babies. And my friend, you feed them often with a dropper, certainly with a bottle, not a fire hose. <laughs> And what happens many times is we get what I call the hamburger and fan treatment. We get the people in front of us and put all the hamburger on here, turn the fan on. You know, spraying them all over the place. Woo! Was the conference some time ago? A guy came out and says, man, that was deep truth. Yeah, I said, it really was. It was about 12 feet under for me. How far under was it for you? Oh. See, we have this crazy idea that if it's foggy, it must be scholarly. <laughs> But you know, if even I can understand it, then obviously. <laughs> you want that passage? It's John 16, 12 through 15. We are bolting the food. There are two things that are essential to growth, my friends. One is food. The other is exercise. If you give too much of either one, you create a problem. And I really think that many times, and I mean this very sincerely and very lovingly, that our churches are filled with people who are suffering from spiritual indigestion. They are spiritually obese. They've been fed, and let's face it, in some of the good, solid churches in this area, you can go and get two solid meals in the morning and one or two of them in night and several during the week. And these people come, you know, let's get some more truth. They fill their notebooks up, they go to seminars, man, they got the stuff coming out their ears. But you can't get them off the dime. 
It never makes much difference in their life. And that's why many times what I love to do to a person is give them a little truth and say, okay, now, let's go out and apply it. We'll come back next week to find out how it worked. And I don't want you to share me simply all of your successes. I want you to share with me your failures, how they went out and fell flat on their face. You ever been in a testimony meeting where everybody gets up, one guy gets up and says, well, this last week I led six people to Jesus Christ. Oh, wonderful, amen. You know, another one gets up, and, well, I did so, ooh, glory, tremendous, amen. You know, and then another brother gets up and says, well, I tried about three times this week, and I failed each one. Oh, well, great. Anybody else got a good word for Jesus? <laughs> Truth of the matter is he's probably one of the only honest ones in the crowd. And the average, I used to listen to these testimonies, and I was so frustrated, I figured, I'm not even going to try, because I'm sure I could never be that successful. And sure enough, I tried once, and I was a total flop. And boy, back in the show, you go again. Well, I guess I just don't have the gift of evangelism. <laughs> Fourth. I say in connection with that third one, study that through. That's, that's freighted. Jesus Christ knew where they were. John 14, that choice illustration of Philip there in the midst of this profound theological discussion, dear old Philip with an IQ of about 90 or 95, is just lost in root. And finally he just blurts out, Lord, just show us the Father. That'll suffice us. <laughs> Interesting thing in the Gospels, the only two people that ever brought anybody to Jesus Christ are Philip and Andrew. And I suspect that most of them probably, both of them were probably very vanilla. It's just IQ, just common guy. Greeks came to see Jesus. To whom did they go? Philip and Andrew. You want to see the Lord? Sure, come on. They go to Peter and John. They'd still be in committee. <laughs> Fourth, Jesus Christ taught men by creating an atmosphere that is stimulating and non-threatening. By creating an atmosphere that is stimulating and non-threatening. That's the key to Christ's extensive use of questioning. And you will discover he never embarrasses one. Never takes off somebody's hide. He says, man, whom do men say that I am? Oh, man, they came up with all the answers. Great. How about you? Well, Peter says, well... They rush into his presence one day and say, Lord, they're all taking off. He says, good, maybe you should go too. Ooh. <laughs> to whom shall we go? You got the words of eternal life. He says, man, Peter, you never got that on your own. That's not the product of flesh and blood thinking. That's good news. See, we never tell people to go home. I am impressed by how many times Jesus told people to go home. And the further down the line they went, the more he draws the bee on that commitment. No man putting his hand to the plow looks back. You burn all of the bridges behind you. See, my friends, doubts are a necessary part of growth. And I really think, honestly, 
that many times we are providing too many answers rather than questioning more answers. We are answering too many questions. Jesus Christ is constantly moving in on people. He's not afraid of loose ends as long as they're alive. Well, I wish I had an hour to talk on that. Let me give you two others. Fifth, Jesus Christ taught in this revolutionary manner by conveying his love to people. And mind you, in terms that they could understand. Always interesting to me to ask a mother, do you love your children? Do I love my children? Of course I love my children. I said, how do they know? One lady said, well, I wash and iron his clothes and I prepare all of his meals and clean the house. I said, how old is your son? She said, three. I said, I'll bet that's a real grabber. <laughs> well, I bet he just sits down and says, ooh, isn't this fantastic? <laughs> no, he's not even aware. He just messes them up more. What he's impressed by is the fact that you take some time with him. In fact, that's why your kid will ask you those stupid questions, you think. Hey, Mom, what's my name? Son, you're acting like your father. <laughs> if he is, the father's brilliant. You know what he's asking for? He's asking for information. He's asking for fellowship. He's asking for you, that great big adult, to come all the way down here and look him straight in the eye and say, Bobby! <laughs> Past semester, I asked a group of students to do a very searching piece of work for me. I said, look, I want your help. You've been involved all this semester, so I want you to give me an evaluation. I don't want you to tell me what I want to hear. I want you to tell me what I need to hear. And they complied. But in our discussion on this, I said, what do you think really came through to you? And one guy expressing it for the group said, you know, Prof, it wasn't primarily in what you said or even what you did, but who you are to us that makes the difference. And as our brother Don mentioned at the outset, there is a relational thrust to Christianity. And I think many times we say, well, we're interested in our pupils, we're interested in our students, we're interested in our disciples, as long as they are interested in us. And I think this calls for your willingness to be extremely vulnerable, to be willing to pay the price of flowing into the life of people. And there is a high price tag. Teaching involves changing men from within. And it's often a process of changing people who have thick, thin skins and a thick heart to people who have thick skin and a thin heart. 
people are constantly asked, why did men follow Jesus? It's very obvious. He loved them. Last thing I want to mention to you this morning. By the way, in that love, he did not hesitate to rebuke. We got a sloppy view of love. Boy, have we been sold a bill of goods in our culture. You know, if you love a guy, you'll never hurt him. That's not biblical. Blessed are the wounds of a friend. You sit down and you will discover, ladies and gentlemen, and most of you don't have many friends. You got a lot of acquaintances, but very few friends. How many friends do you have who could sit down and say, hey, brother, you got a problem? I had some pains down in here some time ago, and I went to my closest friend as a surgeon. I said, hey, buddy, I got some pains down here. He said, well, let's take some pictures. Took some pictures. He said, Hendricks, you get a rock collection down there. And since you're not a geologist, we better take them out. <laughs> well, I said, uh, you know, what are the odds? Oh, he said, about 90-10. I said, spell that out. He said, about 90% you won't live unless we take them out. About 10% you will. I like a guy who spells it out for you. <laughs> Do you believe it, my friend? That guy cut me about that long. Right there. And he never shed a tear. He never said, Owie, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to have to cut you. I really think he enjoyed it. It's quite a cut up. <laughs> you know what we discovered after he sliced me? He missed it by 10%. So that the only reason, humanly speaking, I'm standing before you is that my closest friend who loves me like a brother sliced me. Oh, for the people who really care that much. I'm not talking now, you know, about arbitrary moving in, saying, now, brother, you really need some help. <laughs> you know that great verse, if a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, club him. <laughs> You know that one? That's the reverse standard version. <laughs> well, I can see that's too convicting. Let's move on to the last one. Intensify interpersonal relations. Jesus Christ communicated by intensifying interpersonal relations. I've discovered over the years that the students I change, I change in direct proportion to my personal involvement in their life. You cannot change people across a chasm. And as I've often said, my students ask profound questions. They ask questions like, Prof, what time is this period over? <laughs> yeah, it really does something for you as a professor. Well, here's the one I love. Uh, Professor, uh, are you going to ask this on the exam? Ooh, you know, what a deep level of interest. And then while they're going out the door, I say, hey, how about coming out to my house? Sure, Prof, what are you going to do? I don't know. Come on out. We'll find out. They come out to the house. We had 49 guys out the other night. Get ourselves involved in the discussion, a little coke in the hand. Pretty soon it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And nobody's asking, uh, hey, Prof. When's this period over? You gonna ask this on the exam? See, I don't understand all I know. 
I just know that you change a person in direct proportion to your personal involvement with that individual. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do in the body, to develop a fellowship of the concerned, people who really care and who are willing to pour themselves out like a drink offering on behalf of other people. Our Father, thank you so much for the privilege of this day, for the wonderful personalized ministry of the Holy Spirit who's come to reproduce Jesus Christ in us. We ask our Father that this day may be one of great growth and blessing. We pray that you will do more than simply rearrange our prejudices. We pray that you will enable us to think and to change as a result on the basis of our exposure to your truth. Thank you in advance for what you're going to do because we come with great expectation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.